Good morning, everybody. Well, this morning we are continuing in the book of John. And our passage for us this morning is taken from John chapter 8, and it's the first 11 verses. So let's start off by reading that. John chapter 8, verse 1. If you're in the Brown Pew Bibles, you'll find it, I think, on page 1661. If it's in your own Bible, it's up to you to find it. But we'll start with verse chapter 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to him, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Within these verses are quotes that have been misused and taken out of context, not just by the secular world, but even at times by Christians. But before we get into that, I want to take some time this morning to address a footnote that starts these verses. In my, the NIV translation that I use, there's a footnote that begins, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. Well, what does this mean? To answer that question, you have to take a look at four other questions. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, because we don't have a lot of time in front of us. But also, I'm not an ancient Greek scholar or theologian. So I don't plan to get into all the debates on this. But there are four questions that present themselves. The first question is, is this scripture? The second question, was this written by John? Thirdly, was this event true? Did it happen? And fourthly, if it was not part of John's original uh, text, then how did it get there? Well, it's hard to answer all these questions individually because they're all so intertwined with each other. But all the evidence that I looked at, all the credible scholars, all came to the same conclusion that there is no reason to believe that this event did not occur. And even John, in the last verse of his gospel, records, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that were to be written. We know that the scripture, or the Bible, 
is the inspired word of God. Now, God did not stand behind the men who authored the Bible and dictated to them word for word what they were to put down, but rather the Holy Spirit inspired them to record what they recorded. So who did the Holy Spirit inspire to record this encounter if it wasn't John? We may never know the side of eternity. But the story does provide, in this part of John, an interesting lead into, or segue, into the second half of the chapter. It's an interesting segue into judging and guilt that occurs farther on in the chapter. Some commentators have said that these verses are an awkward fit in this part of John, but others have said that it leads into the second half with some fluidity. So if you want me to definitively answer those four questions, you're out of luck this morning. If Bible scholars who spent probably a big chunk of their lifetime debating this can't figure it out, I'm not going to offer any more insight. But I will, I, I will offer this, though. I believe that this encounter between Jesus, the woman, and the Pharisees did occur. And I believe this because I've not found any evidence to say that it hasn't occurred. As well, the lessons that Jesus taught in this encounter fit into his accord of mercy, grace, and restoration with God his Father. So I'll side with the group who believe that this event took place, as it is written, because I haven't found evidence to denounce it, but there is enough evidence to support it. An interesting side note, just before we get into this passage, I find the honesty of the scholars who interpreted the original text into the different versions of the English translation that we have, I find that honesty awfully refreshing. Many histories have been written of countries and of individual people that are far less honest in their accuracy. And over time, these stories fade away. Sometimes it only takes a generation. Sometimes it takes four or five hundred years. But all these histories fade away. But the Bible has lasted for millennial after millennial and will continue. And it's to the credit of the translators to honestly translate and record what was in the original text. Well, looking into this text, the Pharisees are at it again. They feel so threatened by Jesus that they were trying yet again to trap him and either discredit him in front of the Jewish people or find some charge that they can bring up before the Roman authorities to try and get Jesus out of their face. How do we know that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus? Well, it says so. They were using a question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. That's in verse 6. To better understand the historical background of this encounter, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And we did a little bit of that just this morning when Mark was up here. See, the Pharisees were using the Mosaic Law to try and trap Jesus, but they weren't using it very well. And if anybody should have known this law, it should have been the Pharisees. But in their desperation to get rid of Jesus, they were using whatever they can think of. Well, let's look at the law that God gave to Moses, that covenant that God made with his people Israel in order to keep them in a right relationship with God. The first reference that God made regarding regarding adultery to Moses 
occurred on Mount Sinai when God imprinted the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets that Moses was to present to the Israelites. And as Mark pointed out this morning, God took his finger and he wrote those Ten Commandments on those stone tablets. I guess you could say God had the first touchscreen tablet. Don't moan and groan because you would have said it too. But seriously, though, adultery was not and is not a trivial thing in front of God's eyes. The first four commandments that God gave to Moses dealt with our relationship to God, and the next six dealt with our relationship to each other. And the third of those commandments, quite simply and plainly said, you shall not commit adultery. God went on to expand on that command in both Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. Speaking from the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The punishment for adultery was death. Not just for the woman, but also for the man. That's a harsh punishment. But the sacredness of the marriage bed was so important to God that he would stop at nothing to stop its defilement. If both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be punished, well then where was the man in this story? The Pharisees told Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. Well, if you caught her in the act, how could you not catch the man? Any judge answering questions regarding this would have asked, where is the man? Why is he not standing here to answer to these accusations as well? But Jesus is no ordinary judge. And that's what trips up the Pharisees time and time again, just as it was read earlier. Whose inscription is on this coin? Jesus so often answers his accusers with a question, and they're just not ready for it. And this was another case. The Pharisees are not recognizing or acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah, could not bring themselves to also acknowledging that Jesus was there when God his Father gave the law to Moses, that very same law that they were using to try and trap Jesus. Now this law, the Torah, the Mosaic law, this was given to the Israelites when they had left their bondage in Egypt. This was something that God had given them that they were to live their lives in accordance with so that their relationship with God would remain holy. Jesus came, as it was also said, not to get rid of the Old Covenant, not to do away with the Old Covenant, but he said, I've not come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill it. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore but we're still under those same principles. And that's what we have to look at this morning when we look at this story. Today, adultery is not punishable by death, but in God's eyes, it's still just as serious. You remember the very first words from the book of John when we started this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Of course you remember. I spoke on it. How could you forget? Seriously, I had to look back to see what I said in uh, my own sermon 
So I don't blame you if you can't remember. But these words are an acknowledgement that Jesus was there when God wrote that covenant with his people. Jesus knew it better than anybody else. When someone stands accused before a human judge, that judge must hear all the evidence, and then he must use his wisdom and his knowledge of the law in order to decide if that person is guilty or innocent. And as history has proven, judges get it wrong sometimes. But Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees, and he knew the heart of the woman. Jesus doesn't need to hear evidence in order to decide one's guilt. He already knows. He knows our guilt before we even commit the sin. But Jesus chose not to debate the letter of the law here, but instead he chose to use this as an opportunity to express grace and a second chance. That was also spoken of this morning in the communion portion. Second chances. Forgiveness. Nowhere in this account was the guilt of the adulteress in question. Even to us, it stands out. She was guilty. But the intent of the Pharisees was not to see justice served. Rather, their intent was to get rid of Jesus, who was a threat to their power. And they were trying to use this woman's sin as a means by which to accomplish it. These verses are the only record in the Bible of Jesus actually writing And isn't it interesting the way Mark brought out how God wrote on those stone tablets? Jesus, with his finger, wrote on the ground. We don't know what was said. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of disappointed not to know what Jesus wrote. One time, one time in the Bible he writes. And we're not given privy to that. But then I think, well, that obviously wasn't important what he wrote. Otherwise, it would have been recorded. Whatever Jesus did write, it caught the attention of those willing to pick up a stone because one by one, starting with the older ones, they slowly disappeared. Was it what Jesus had said? If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Was it what he wrote on the ground? Was it a combination of the two? Whatever it was, Jesus found himself alone with this woman. And he gives us one of the most profound examples of how to hate the sinner, sorry, but how to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Jesus had every right to cast judgment on her. The Mosaic law called for it. Jesus, as God's son, had the authority and the power to carry out judgment and punishment. But Jesus, as God's son, also had and has the power and the authority to forgive sin. And that's just what he chose to do in this case. Jesus did not condone what she did. But in his forgiveness, he gave her a second chance. And then he commanded her to go and leave your life of sin. I'm giving you a second chance, not to keep doing what you're doing, but I'm giving you a second chance to get it right with my Father. You've you've heard it said that God is a God of second chances. Well, here's a prime example of him just doing that. I don't believe Jesus gave her a second chance because of the circumstances that she was brought before him. That is, the Pharisees using this as a trap. But I believe he genuinely wanted to forgive her. Jesus dealt with her in a way that was most gracious. And that's a lesson that's easily missed in this story. 
I believe Jesus wanted to forgive the Pharisees as well. But there's a difference. Why did he choose to forgive the woman who was caught in her sin and the Pharisees? Jesus doesn't always deal with sinners the same way. Sometimes he deals with them with grace and mercy. When Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temples, he dealt with them in righteous anger. Jesus knows the hearts. He knows our intents, our intent of what we're doing. Jesus can offer forgiveness, but if you're not willing to accept it, what's the point? Jesus wanted to forgive the Pharisees just as much as that woman because the Bible says it's, it's God's intent that no one should die. But he wants all of us to have a relationship with him. But if we're not willing to have that relationship back, he can't forgive what we're not willing to repent of. Jesus has a distinct advantage of knowing a person's true intentions and he's able to act accordingly. We don't have that insight. But then again, we're not God. This may not have been a one-time act of adultery for this woman because Jesus told her to go and leave your life of sin. But it's never too late to leave your own life of sin. Not as long as you have breath in your lungs and a voice in your heart to speak with. Jesus wants to forgive you and give you a second chance. Well, what are you waiting for? What are we all waiting for? What's holding us back to asking us to give Jesus a second chance? You don't have to be caught in the act of something for this to happen. And I'm not just talking about the salvation type repentance. As Christians, we screw up. We fall down. We sin. We need to go to God and ask for his forgiveness and a second chance. What's holding you back from being all that God wants you to be? Are you constantly falling into Satan's temptations? Well, the U.S. Army has an advertising, a recruiting slogan, be all that you can be in the army. Well, as Christians, we're in God's army. This idea is shunned by some churches today. In fact, some of them have even stricken from their hymnals, Onward Christian Soldier. This idea and the extent to it it's hard to, affect, it's hard to imagine because I'm here this morning to telling you that if you're battling Satan's temptations, then you're in a war and you better be prepared to go into battle. But fortunately, God equips us for just that. Some very well-known verses from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, the, in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. God equips us. We're not in this alone. But even a soldier in battle becomes frightened. Even a soldier in battle becomes paralyzed. Even a soldier in battle becomes injured. But Jesus Christ took the ultimate injury so that we can have dwelling within us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's there to guide us, to chasten us, to lead us in the direction that God wants us to go. What does all this have to do with the woman caught in adultery? Jesus gave her a second chance and in doing so, gave her the opportunity to leave the path that she was marching on and instead join the ranks of God's army to be all that she could be in God's eyes. But the choice was hers. With repentance comes forgiveness of sin and eternal salvation, but the story doesn't end there. As I said, even as Christians... We need to have second chances when we fall. We need to have second chances when we fall into sin and temptation. And repentance is just as necessary for a mature Christian as it is for somebody experiencing it the first time. If as Christians we screw up and sin against God, we need to ask for forgiveness. And if that desire is genuine, God will forgive and he will give us a second chance and he'll keep on giving us second chances as long as our heart is for him and not against him. Let's take a look at uh, what Peter had to say when he asked Jesus a question about forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. In some translations it reads, seven times seventy. Whatever the number, Jesus wasn't implying that you reach this number and then you stop. Jesus was metaphorically saying, you keep on forgiving your brother over and over and over. Jesus did not condone the woman's sin of adultery, but he did not condemn her either in this case. How do we practice the skill of hating the sin, but loving the sinner? By giving somebody a second chance. And that begins with forgiving. When should you stop forgiving your brother and sister? Well, you stop when you're willing to say, Jesus, stop forgiving me. As long as you want Jesus to keep on forgiving you, you need to keep forgiving your brother and sister. But don't think for a minute that this gives you a license to continue a life of sin. Some people falsely believe that that, that God will forgive and they can keep doing whatever they want because all they have to do is ask for forgiveness. And they can just keep doing over and over again what it is Satan has them trapped in. But Paul addressed this in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sitting so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But Jesus cannot forgive the unrepented heart. And that's the picture that the Pharisees portrayed here. They weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in righteousness. They were interested in their own power and they were afraid to lose it. And that's 
why they were before Jesus yet again. At the beginning, I said that this story contains quotes that have been misused and taken out of context by the world and unfortunately by some Christians as well. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And with unison to that, then neither do I condemn you. I've heard people use these words out of context specifically to denounce or to stop somebody from calling them out on a lifestyle, a choice, a sin that they were in. And it works. I mean, if you start talking to somebody about sin and you say, well, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. I mean, that stops you dead in your tracks because you think, yeah, I don't want to be a hypocrite on this. But you have to know the scripture in its context. It's extremely dangerous to take a sentence and make a whole story out of it. It's a lot like looking through a little keyhole in a door into a room and all you see is what you see through the keyhole. But open the door and walk in and you see the vast expanse of what's all before you. And that's what you have to do with God's scripture. The world and Satan loves to quote Jesus out of context to try and discredit and silence Christians. But did Jesus teach that we are never to judge a person's actions or we are never to call sin what it is and that's sin? Let's take a look at the account in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 1 to 5. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. On the surface, if you only read the first sentence, do not judge or you will be judged, it does appear to forbid us from judging others' actions, especially when combined with if any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. But like everything else in the Bible, it's extremely dangerous to take just those few words and apply them to a situation without looking at the whole context in which they were written. In Matthew's account, Jesus is not forbidding us to judge our brother or sister's action, but he's warning us. He's warning us that you'd better do so in fairness and not be a hypocrite for your reasons for judging. Jesus warned his listeners, if they judge, then just remember that the same measuring stick that you use to judge that person will be used to judge your action of judging. Jesus also warned, do not even consider judging somebody else's actions if you are living an unrepentant lifestyle of sin yourself. You've got to take that plank out of your own eye first before you can help your brother. It doesn't mean we need to be living a perfectly sinless life, but we need to have our heart right with God. It's only when we judge our own life first and seek repentance for sin that, that could be a stumbling block can you be a credible judge of somebody else's actions that are leading them into sin. If you stood before a judge on a charge of impaired driving and you knew that judge had already himself been convicted three times of impaired driving and he has no, no reason or want to change his life, you're going to have no respect for that judge's authority. And that's exactly what Jesus was teaching in Matthew. 
Likewise, in John chapter 8, when Jesus called out, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. He was not implying that the accusers had to be sinless in order to carry out justice. The law handed down to Moses required the adulterer and the adulteress to be brought to justice. But in knowing the evil intents of the Pharisees and the fact that they were not interested in seeing the sin of the adulteress punished, rather they were looking to see Jesus discredited, Jesus rightly called into question their credibility as judges and exposed the hypocrisy of their actions. In other words, Jesus could have just as easily said to the Pharisees what he said in chapter Matthew, Do not judge or you will be judged. For the same way that you're judging this woman, I'm going to judge you. Why do you bring her before me? Why don't you stop and take a look at, at yourself? Take that own plank out of your eyes. Take that evil intent of the power that you want out of your hearts first. And then apply my word to the people you're supposed to be in authority over. Jesus also did this in John chapter 7, verse 24, when he commanded the Jewish leaders, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. See, Jesus never commanded us to stop judging, but rather in order to make correct judgments with the correct heart. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the problem of Christians taking their problems that they had, earthly problems, to secular judges. And Paul went on to argue that the saints, or Christians, will judge this world and its actions. So surely you can appoint judges amongst yourselves in these trivial matters. Here Paul was addressing the people in Corinth. As Christians, you're going to be judging the world. So can't you at least judge amongst yourself these trivial matters? See, the story of the woman caught in adultery is a wonderful example of Jesus teaching us to love the sinner while we hate the sin. Jesus teaches us how to forgive the sinner while not condoning the sin. The world uses buzzwords like tolerance, acceptance, and rights. Jesus teaches us to love those who persecute you, to forgive, and to repent of your sin. That's a huge difference. Society comes down hard on Christians because we choose to follow God's standard. And if we are to continue to please God, we must choose God over the world. Because as the Bible puts it, even though we're in the world, we're not of this world any longer. Jesus bought us with a very heavy price, as we remembered earlier this morning. What sin are you caught in? What sin am I caught in? That's something we all have to judge ourselves over and over again. But it doesn't stop there. God wants to give us all that second chance. He wants us to come in repentance, and he wants us to be all that we can be in his army. And we'll close with Stan and the last song that he has. And maybe I'll just ask Stan to close in prayer after that as well. Oh, everybody can stand up for this one. Anyways, it's called Soon and Very Soon We Are Going to See the King. And you know, i, I got to tell you, I work in this high school, and I was talking to the young people the other day, and I said, you know, yesterday I was your age, so you better not thinking about tomorrow. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, life is short, and so is uh, Mosquito's life, and it probably thinks it's got a long life, but you know what? 
I just wonder how short our life is when we think about like, how God looks on us. You know, we might have a very shorter life than what we realize. <laughs> Anyways, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. It's a wonderful thought, eh, that we are going to be able to see the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that loved us unto death, even the death of the cross. Hey, Father, we just thank you for this time, this morning. How that, you know, how, how that all things fit together. And your word is so powerful. <coughs> We thank you for each one here, and we just pray a special blessing on each one, Lord, that heard your word this morning, that you will uh, help us not to be forgetters of your word, that, but we will put them into action. Oh, gracious God, you are such a wonderful, wonderful God, and we just praise you and we thank you. And as we separate, we just pray that you'll Open up areas for us to tell others about what a wonderful Savior you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.